Welcome to my secret obsession. I'm Cherish Lively, and I invite you to indulge your secret obsession by joining me as I read thriller and spicy romance that will get your heart pounding with chills and thrills. So relax, and let's take a journey together. 41. Apropos. Peter's knee was hurt. The bitch had nailed him just right. Last night, he'd gone right home and iced it, but it was still swollen. He'd worked a few spells to numb the pain. They worked, but he had to keep repeating them because they wore off. He didn't regret killing Tasha, but he should have done it differently. A way that the police wouldn't put it together with his other kills. Hopefully, the police wouldn't make the connection between Lexi's visit to the law firm and Tasha's death. That would definitely narrow down the suspect list. He may have to go back to his old ways of killing runaways and prostitutes for a while and wait for the cops to grow complacent. Now he was hunched over in the shrubs waiting for his chance. Maggie Wells, Lexi's sister, had just pulled into the garage. He was in his latex suit and chanted his spell to hide himself from her. Maggie grabbed as many of the plastic grocery bags as she could handle and took them inside. She didn't even notice Peter Breeze passed her in the kitchen. He paused and shifted directions when he spotted something in the dining room. Hanging on the wall was a huge diagram with pictures and details about each victim. Was Lexi Wells actually working with the police? It hadn't crossed his mind that she was more than just a neighbor recognizing a treasured necklace. From the looks of the chart, she was a part of the investigation. He would have to visit her tonight. Peter hustled up the stairs. He needed to find Lexi's room. He peeked in the first bedroom that he came to. It had pictures of Maggie with friends in it. He continued down the hallway, peeking in rooms until he came to Lexi's bedroom. He stepped into her room. It was neat. The bed was made. No clothes were strewn about. A few pictures hung on the walls and were in frames on the dresser. An old book on her nightstand caught its eye. His heart raced as he lightly stroked the leather cover. It was a grimoire. Why the hell did she have a grimoire? Nausea churned in his gut when he realized that Lexi was like him. He'd never fathomed that someone with the gift of sight would be tracking him. That's how she'd known to go to the law firm. What else did she know? Could she pick him out of a line of suspects? He didn't think so. Not if his spells worked. But she was closer than he ever imagined. He heard Maggie coming up the stairs. She was listening to a true crime podcast. The women were talking about the Night Stalker case. How apropos, since he was also a serial killer. When he heard Maggie's bedroom door close, he went back to the grimoire. He opened the book and shook his head. The grimoire belonged to Nikita's grandmother, Cleo Allister. All of this was way too close to home. He clenched his jaw as he stalked into the ensuite bathroom. He knelt and looked into the storage cabinet under the sink. Moving some stuff around, he grabbed her hairbrush and lipstick. Both items would be covered in her DNA. On his way out of the room, he grabbed a picture of her and her family and stole a watch that was on her dresser. He set his spell again and hustled down the stairs and into the kitchen. Pausing, he set a single butterscotch in the middle of the kitchen table. He would leave it up to fate if she saw it or if her sister did. Regardless, he was coming for her. She would be completely defenseless. 42. Are you going to eat this? 
Lexi cursed when Evan called and told her that Tasha Newton was dead. Now she had no doubt that the killer worked at Wolf and Baker. They would have to investigate each man. Maybe they could narrow down the suspects, but a group of lawyers would not offer up any information. They would be too paranoid that the police would try to pin it on them. Besides, any information or leads they did have was from her time jumping. That would not stand up in court. Right now, they had nothing to show a judge to convince them that they needed a search warrant on all the men at the law firm. With no DNA or any other clue from the killings and the killer's supernatural powers, he could get away with this. They never found the Zodiac killer. Would they find this man? She jogged down the stairs and into the dining room. The pictures of the women hung on the wall with what little information they had about each woman. Their age, employer, and minor tidbits summed up their lives. They didn't even know how he chose the women. Did their paths just cross? Was it all a chance meeting that ended in death for the women? Everyone, except Tasha, was brunette with long, wavy hair. Tasha was the outlier. She was only dead because Lexi recognized the wolf at the law firm. Hey, Maggie called from the kitchen. She'd had a hacking cough all day. She picked up a hard candy from the kitchen table. Are you going to eat this? Lexi set her hands on her hips and stared at Anna. Guilt consumed her. Why couldn't she find the killer? Was there a way for her to remove the mask the next time she went back? Could she tear it off of him before he started to strangle her? She had to find the killer. Anna and Olivia needed some sort of justice. All of the women did. Maggie coughed into her arm and walked to the fridge to get something to drink. I'm going to eat this if you don't answer me. Um, Lexi grunted. Eat what? The candy, Maggie yelled. The candy on the table. What? Lexi yelled and rushed into the kitchen. What candy? This one. Maggie brought it to her nose and sniffed. I think it's a butterscotch. Oh my God, set it down. Put it on the table. Lexi's laser focus narrowed in on the candy and what its presence meant. He'd been there. This was a threat. He could have hurt Maggie. Naja churned her stomach. What's the problem? Maggie asked as she tossed it back onto the table. Lexi stepped to Maggie and put her hands on her arms. I want you to pack a bag and you go stay with Aunt Sandy. That's like a four-hour drive. You can't just show up. Yes, yes you can. That candy was left by the strangler. That's a threat. Strangler? Maggie said with disbelief. She took a step back, so Lexi had to let go of her. How do you know that? Listen, Lexi began. You can't tell anyone. But at each kill, he's left a butterscotch candy. Promise me that you won't even tell Sandy about that. Just tell her that you're too scared to stay here. She didn't tell Maggie about the butterscotch in the vagina, because the police didn't want that information out. He's coming after me. I got too close. Maggie shook her head. None of this makes any sense. But you know how I have the gift of sight, Lexi said. Yeah, Maggie nodded. He does too, and he's more powerful than I am. I don't even know what he's capable of. Well, then you need to come with me. If he's after you, then you can't just sit around and wait for him, especially if he's more powerful than you. You won't win. I won't be alone. I'll have Evan with me. Now pack your bag and get out of here.
43. Believer. Here, it's decaf, Lexi said when she set a coffee mug on the dining room table in front of Evan. She'd set up her computer and large monitor for them to use. Bring up the photo of the lawyers and staff, she said. She set her own coffee on the table as she scooted in next to Evan. Evan clicked on a link. All right, uh, here's the shot of the lawyers. Serial killers typically stay within their own race, so he's most likely white. He looked at Lexi. When you've seen him with your cognition? Retrocognition, Lexi corrected. Retrocognition? What physical traits does he have? Well, he's always been in that black latex suit, but he's fit, strong, but not overly muscular. Average height. That would shrink the list of suspects some. Is it possible that you could see him as fit and in reality he's overweight? If he has you seen a wolf instead of him, is it possible that he can affect how you see him? Lexi rubbed her forehead. Yeah, I guess, but I don't really know. I think when I see him in the suit, I'm seeing him through the women's eyes. So I think my conclusions are right. Let's start with the ones that fit my description of him. Okay, Evan said. I'll print out their pictures for the wall. And while you do that, Lexi began, I'm going to get the grimoire. Lexi hustled up the stairs to her bedroom. Standing in the center, she wondered what he'd looked at. What had he done in here? She spotted her toothbrush through the bathroom door. She took off the toothbrush head and threw it away. God knows what he'd done with that. Once the pictures finished printing, she headed back to Evan. Hey, if you can get me into the lawyer's offices, I may get a feeling or see the wolf if I touch their stuff. I know my input won't be allowed in court, but it could give you someone to follow and dig into deeper. He leaned back in the chair and eyed her as she made her way to the whiteboard and taped up the men's pictures. I've thought about that, but I don't have anything to go to a judge with to get a search warrant, and they'll never let the cops wander around their offices without one. True. Let's put what we know about these men on the board. Then I'll show you the grimoire. Time went quickly as they bulleted bits of information under each man's photo. The whiteboard that spanned the wall was loaded with information, but no real clues. Lexi set her hands on her hips and stared at the men. One of them was a serial killer. One of them had been in her house. Evan let out a sigh. He stood and stretched. Lexi looked over her shoulder her brown hair spilling down her back. Been sitting too long? Yeah, it ticked him off that the killer had been in Lexi's house. Her life was in jeopardy, and he had nothing to go on. No way to hunt the man down. He tapped his finger on the cover of the old book. What's this? A grimoire. It's like a diary of a psychic or a witch. They keep spells and other supernatural tidbits in it. He flipped open the cover. A few months ago, he would have laughed at the idea of spells and magic. But after what he'd seen with Lexi, he'd switched sides. He was now a believer. 44. Bodyguard I got this grimoire from Cleo Allister. Her spells and powers are very common for a medium. Unfortunately, there's nothing in here that relates to the more powerful abilities that my great-grandparents must have had. Nothing on retrocognition? Nope. There's a lot of how to read tarot cards, the uses of different herbs and crystals, 
The most important stuff in here has to do with spells, protection spells, inversion, she began. Inversion, he asked. You use that spell to stop or break a curse that's been set on you. She flipped open to one of the protection spells and stuck a sticky note on the page. We may want this later. She let out a sigh as he read it. Lexi's cell chimed. She glanced at the text from Maggie. The code word for danger was not there, so she trusted the validity of the text. She got to my aunt's house. That's good. He watched her walk to the whiteboard and stare at it. He couldn't deny his attraction to her. She was a beautiful woman with an even more beautiful soul. She'd bugged the hell out of him the first few times they met, but he now understood and trusted her. She looked over her shoulder at Evan. Do you think he'll come here again? To get me? Isn't that why I'm here? Evan pulled his Glock from his holster and set it on the table. Parked a few streets over. If he does come, hopefully he won't know that I'm here. Then Evan's brow wrinkled. Do you think he could change the direction of bullets? He hadn't thought about that. If the killer can control bullets, that would render him powerless and probably dead. Perhaps if you surprise him, the speed of the bullet will be too fast for him to react to. I'm not going to lie, he said. I don't like that answer. She scoffed. Neither do I, but you deserve to know the truth. He stifled a yawn and looked at the time. It was pushing midnight. What time do you usually go to bed? A lot earlier than this. She grabbed the mugs from the table and took them into the kitchen and set them in the sink. She made her way back to him in the dining room. Everything is locked up. I double-checked. Are you good if we go up? Yeah. He grabbed his duffel bag and followed her up the stairs. She led him into her bedroom and set the grimoire on her nightstand. We still have a single-bed mattress that we had when we were kids. We used it for our sleepovers with friends. I dragged it in here for you. He chuckled at the princess sheets and comforter that covered it. Well, that's a lot better than the floor. Thanks. She leaned close to him and whispered, I won't tell anyone about your princess bed. She nudged him with her elbow and then headed towards the bathroom. I threw out my toothbrush head, paranoid that he did something with it. Don't worry. I've sanitized the counters, toilet, and even the floor. If that bastard did something gross in here, it's already been dealt with. What about your bed? He hated to say it. Some assholes would masturbate in their target's bed. She peeked out of the bathroom door. Yeah, I saw the bodyguard. Fresh sheets and a clean quilt. She tapped her temple to show that she was thinking all of this through. He let out a low laugh. I should know better than to underestimate you. With her toothbrush in her hand, she pointed at him and said, That, kind sir, is the most reasonable thing I've heard you say. She winked at him and continued. The guest room is next door. You can use the bathroom in there if you'd like. Give you a little more privacy. He chuckled as he squatted by his duffel bag and pulled out a t-shirt and a pair of boxers to sleep in. He'd change into those when he brushed his teeth. She came out of the bathroom in a tank top and yoga shorts. It looked amazing. He tried not to stare, but damn, she was perfection from every angle. She clicked on the lamp on her nightstand and turned off the overhead light. She pulled back the covers and slipped under the sheets. Once he was finished in the bathroom, he slid under the princess sheets and tucked the Glock under the pillow. He set another Glock just under her bed where he could reach it quickly. Good night, Lexi, he said. 
She leaned over and turned off the lamp. Good night. Now that you're caught up with the audiobook, get ready to discuss some spine-tingling true crime stories that will make your heart race at everything that goes bump in the night. And then his other letter was called Saucy Jack. I was not cutting, old dear boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow, double event this time. Double event. So this made me think maybe he knew he was going to do two women, and that wasn't just an accident. If if he wrote that, a double event. But he didn't get, he didn't get his ritual on the first. Right. Mm-hmm. He may have been planning to kill two people because, again, he had sussed out the whole uh, the police schedule. Yeah. So maybe he had an idea that I'm going to do two of them, and right. that'll be really crazy. But then he couldn't do his ritual. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I think he probably had planned it out, definitely. Could be. There's no reason why it couldn't. You know, I'm wondering, where is he putting these organs? He must be carrying a, a bag around or something, which I guess he would have his tools in. It's very important to remember that um, in some cases they had things like hunting jackets, yeah. which had rubber lined pockets. Huh. Um, and that was, that was so that you could shoot like a grouse out on the, on the moor or whatever, and pick the, pick the bird up, put it in your pocket. And then you don't have to worry about blood leaking onto your, your, into your uh, the cloth. Okay. I did not know so, about that. That's interesting, mm-hmm. isn't it? Well, I write a lot of steampunk, so uh, you know <laughs> yeah. I, I, I read up on things like that. So the a material that's not going that's going to repel the you know the blood. So mm-hmm. he may have very well had that kind had a jacket like that and was able to put the organ in his pocket, yeah, and just walk off. Or he may have had a bag that had some yeah. kind of lining, you know, something in it, or a specimen jar. Any number of things he could have done mm-hmm. to, to transport the the organ. And yeah. of course, a guy walking around with a doctor bag—you're not gonna, you're not yeah. gonna notice if he's got blood on the cuffs of his shirt, or right. you know, if or if maybe there's like some blood on his coat somewhere. You're gonna assume this. Well, this guy's obviously been in surgery. Look at the right. there's the doctor bag right there. We're actually into episode three, talking about the Ripper letters. Yeah, the Whitechapel runs red, and one of the people that they take these letters to are Jeff Lindsay and John Harris. They're forensic linguists and speech professionals. So they actually look at these two letters. And then I believe Amaryllis and Jeff had also given them letters that they knew Holmes had written. So they were trying to figure out if there were any similarities or what they thought the probability would be that maybe an American had written those two letters. And they kind of ended up coming out as, there were some things in the the Dear Boss and the Saucy Jack letter that did lead them to think that maybe it was written by an American because they look at uh, the words and the phrases and even the placement of where the verb goes in relation to another word and whether that would be considered more of an American English or English English um, right. phrase. So I thought that was really interesting. What did you think about uh, about that stuff? You and I both, we work with words, and so we probably tend to have a greater fascination for this sort of thing, right? Um, I noticed that they said that when they looked at the term fix me, mm-hmm. which is contained in the, the Dear Boss, fix me is too close. 
there mm-hmm. American slang and British slang at that time was close enough where both Americans and British people used it. Right. Um, nowadays, you know, the Brits still use it. They say, you know, you're trying to fix me up for this murder or, you know, when you're, when you're watching like a British crime show or whatever, you know, you're trying to stitch me up or mm-hmm. stitch me, fix me, basically the same thing. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, then they move on to another phrase, shan't quit. Well, th- this is different because the British tend to use the word stop and we tend to use the word quit. They right. use quit in a different way. I'm, you know, I want to be quit of this situation. I want to be, I want to be removed from this. Mm-hmm. Not I'm going, we don't, they're not using quit generally as a, you know, a synonym for halt. Um, and then of course the, the dear boss is huge. Yes. Even in that time period, there is a vast gap between the usage. The Brits just simply don't use boss. Right. And then also the phrase right away is more yes. American than because they straight say away. straight away. Right. Yes. Exactly. So there's there's a lot there to believe that the person either was American or was traveling to American often enough to to kind of steep themselves in uh, American phraseology, you know, yeah. slang and all of that. I was going to say Jeff Mudgett, of course got very excited about this um, yeah. because <laughs> to him, this is one more proof of, or one right. more potential proof of the fact that it could be. Um, and and we need to back up just a little bit because I kind of derailed you earlier. You were having uh, your, uh, your dry throat issues. And I went off <laughs> on Catherine Eddowes and started adding some things you were brought, you were bringing up the shawl. Oh, that's and right. so we, we should mention that the shawl, uh, was tested for its DNA, and they hit uh, Mudgett and Fox hit a brick wall here because the DNA is shown to be ninety-five uh, percent certain that it does not contain Mudgett's DNA. Right. And then the other five percent is also shown that you know doesn't it's not him either. So it's like a hundred percent certainty that no one sharing his DNA touched that shawl. That mm-hmm. does not mean that Jack the Ripper, because first of all, he didn't have to touch the shawl possibly right. to kill her. And mm-hmm. secondly, if he was wearing gloves and was had uh, long sleeves, there's a chance that no DNA got onto the shawl itself. Mm-hmm. Plus, you've got to remember it's been 125 years. Yeah. It's been handled by how many people? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe somebody even washed the shawl at right. some point or another. You know, anything could have caused the DNA to not show up. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, but but we it's important to note that Mudgett runs into this snag. Yeah. So I think that's why he gets so excited mm-hmm. about yeah. the, about the language matching up. I think he really wants this to be true, and I think he wants to also, in a sense, maybe just be the one to crack this mystery, right. you know, this unsolved case for all this time. And and wow, what if what if he was the one who figured it out? I mean that that would be incredible, right? I think so. Then moving back, I, I to don't. The, I don't get the I, I, real quick. I don't get the impression, by the way, that Mudgett is necessarily into it uh, for the way his ancestor would have been into it, which is a purely like monetary gain. I didn't. Right. I didn't get that impression. I felt like he just believed, and yeah. he wanted. He wanted to test his theory a, as extensively as possible, and he, but he wanted to be right. 
Yeah, and I agree with that. I actually really liked the guy. I thought he was a great. I, I did too. Um, I would have loved to sat down with the both of them and just you know over a cup of coffee and just pick their brains. Yeah, because they both seem like very interesting people. They do, and you mm-hmm. know he he's obviously poured his life into this. You know, right. I, I can imagine here he has this chance to possibly prove that he's right. Of course, you'd get excited. You know, so I can see yeah. why jumping at the chance of oh yeah, this was written by American. That's one more piece of evidence that Mm -hmm. agrees with him they also found an h holmes on the shipping manifest and then a couple other of his aliases were also on some of the shipping manifests so it is really interesting that there's a potential oh and another thing on batty street lodger there was another um in i guess you know one of those hotels or whatever and an American had stayed there overnight and left his doctor bag, and he never returned. But they yes. did find some. Uh, I forget. Did they find blood on the the doctor they, stuff? They they found blood on the cuffs. Okay. Yeah. Cuffs. That he let the cuffs off of his shirt because his cuffs were removable. So they fa- they found the cuffs that had blood on them, and I believe maybe one of the knives might have had some blood on it too. I, but I can't I think be. So I can't too. be certain about that. So three of his of of Holmes's known aliases were detected on the shipping manifest. Mm-hmm. People traveling. So there's Herman Holmes, who was 31. There's Alex Gordon, who was 24, mm-hmm. and there is also an H Holmes, 36. Yeah. All of them are said to have traveled. Now, H H Holmes, of course, at the time of the Ripper murders, is 27 years old. And because he's got the the fa- you know facial hair, mm-hmm. I know as a man, facial hair makes you look, uh, gives you a range of age. Yeah. So you can have like mustache or a beard, and and people have a harder time aging you. Yeah. They're like, yeah, hey, I could be anywhere from like twenty two to thirty five or whatever because right. he's got a beard. You know, it's hard to see the face underneath. Mm-hmm. So he could have been anywhere from twenty four to thirty six. Alex Gordon in particular is of interest because he leaves from Liverpool and travels, I think to Philadelphia in December of the year of the, uh, of the murders, Mm -hmm. which is almost perfect in a way because the murders, I believe end in November. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden here is this person, Alex Gordon hopping a, a steamer, and going back to America. They got really excited about that. Yeah. And and rightfully so, because, I mean, that definitely feels like, at the very least, it feels like Holmes was in Whitechapel during the times of the murders, whether he is Jack or not. Right. He is, he could have been there and somehow, you know, he could have been reading the papers and mm-hmm. he could have got been influenced yeah. by Jack the Ripper. And, you know, when, and if in, it's released to the public that Mary Kelly was killed indoors, that could have influenced him in his own work. Yeah. So he doesn't necessarily have to be Jack the Ripper to have been influenced by him, to right. have said, man, you know, I can, it's smart to get indoors on them because then you have time to work. And so therefore, when he goes back to America and, you know, and the bodies start piling up, you know, it sounds like he may have, he's a smart guy. Yeah. And if there's one thing that Holmes was good at, it was making adjustments. 
Mm-hmm. He would learn from his mistakes and make adjustments, and he was constantly varying his methods. So, you know, he may have like he may have learned that, yeah, man, killing them on the streets too too iffy. But, yeah, you know, let's let's get them inside where you can work on them. Right, and you know, you have more time to do what you're what you're wanting to do, whether that is ratification of the the kill itself, mm-hmm. or if he's trying to, you know, if it's a purely monetary thing where he's trying to strip the bodies of, of you know the flesh so that they keep himself the bones or whatever, you know, he could be influenced by right. So the lady who ran the Batty Street Lodge, she gave a testimony or eyewitness explanation of who she thought the guy was. And she had said he was short, like 5'7", which happens to be the same height as H.H. Holmes. But what's interesting about this woman is 25 years later, she says that she she sees this man again. And he actually ends up being um, another doctor who is American. It's a Dr. Francis Tumlety. Mm -hmm. And they end up figuring out that it wasn't him. He's too old. Yes. But she had thought that she'd seen him. And I I had to think, okay, I don't know that I would be able to recognize someone two years later, let alone 25 years later. Right. Just with how people's bodies change, the face, the, you know, the coloring in your hair changes over 25 years between being 30 and 50. But But did you see the mustache on that guy? (laughs) That's true. That is the if he kept that mustache for 25 years, I could have picked him out if I was blind. That thing that's true. It looked like he had two unicorn horns like sticking out of the side of his just all all, you know going opposite directions off of his lip. Yeah, no, that's true. Holmes would have had to beat that guy to death for stealing his mustache wax because I mean that you know he must have used a gallon of that stuff a day a day i know man he does have quite the mustache oh my goodness but i just thought that was interesting that she um yeah did end up being an american because if she was going by looks and she thought you know she saw him across the the room or across the street right she wouldn't have necessarily heard him speak or know he was american but she may have thought that is that is who it was who i saw and then he ends up being american is just kind of interesting that also remember that um, when he flees, because they they arrest him, question him, oh yeah, and then he and then he hops a ship and gets out of there. When he does that, the British people ask America to keep an eye out for him. I want to say it was Mudgett that said it, or possibly one of the other people they interviewed, but it was this idea, you know, yeah, that that that's a big thing for one government to reach out to another government and say. Can you keep an eye on this guy for us? Find out where he lands and all of that. Uh Because they had to have had a strong suspicion. So there there may very well be some evidence that we no longer have Mm -hmm. that also points to an American. Right. Um, Remember also they have 13 eyewitnesses as to his appearance. Yes. And perhaps Tumblety, aside from having the world's most insane mustache... (laughs) You know, maybe he physically resembles. Right. Short, slight build. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's also important to mention that they they were looking at a guy named John Pizer at one point. Yes. Um, but he but this was when they were exploring the idea that this person had um what was possibly a butcher because his nickname was Leather Apron. Yes. And he was also known to 
uh, be violent and aggressive toward prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, he's ruled out pretty early on, though, because when uh, one of the murders occurs, he's actually being questioned by a police officer. Yeah. So that's a pretty that, good that's alibi. alibi. That's about the best alibi you can get. Yeah, it is. You know, short, short of being like, I'm hanging out with my priest. Yeah. You know, that's about the best you can get on that. So. Yeah. Yeah. John Pizer, Leather Apron, they called him. That leather Apron, right. Leather Apron. So and the and the British press ran with that one for quite a while. I imagine so. so yeah, yeah, that was the first name they had for it. For oh, Jack okay. was Leather Apron. Leather Apron. We're we're clearly slipping into episode four now. Yes. By the way, bringing up the uh, handwriting analysis and all of that. One of the first things I thought going into episode four was why are they not analyzing the handwriting of Jack the Ripper? And H.H. Holmes, they both have, we have we have a lot of, of material for both. So why are they not hiring a, a handwriting analyst? At that, this is what I'm thinking as, they, as we enter episode four. I'm thinking this. I'm like, this is very upsetting to me. Why aren't they? This is clearly something where they could, they could prove it incontrovertibly if they, mm-hmm. can get an, if they can get a, you know, a match on the handwriting. The other thing I was also thinking. And again, I've only watched through episode five, so I still have six, seven, and eight to go. But I was concerned with why they're not looking at murders happening in Philadelphia immediately after Holmes is supposed to have arrived. Because if you look at the kill, the, the Jack the Ripper kills, they're they're pretty regular. Yeah. And this is an indication of someone who is escalating their work so it seems to me either a guy that's on this kind of murderous bender mm-hmm. he's either going to kill somebody kill a woman in steerage on, on the, the five or six days that it takes them to go across the the ocean or he's going to step off that boat and immediately go find himself a prostitute because mm-hmm. this is a person that's going to have a taste for blood there he's going to be ramped you know amped up that that violent streak. Right. Because it doesn't seem like this is a, this is a kind of guy who can dial it back now. Mm-hmm. It's another reason why I doubt the whole H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, Jack the Ripper thing is because it seems like he, he shouldn't be able to have controlled it. So why weren't they looking in Philadelphia for mysterious Ripper like murders immediately, like December or January? You know, because he would have he would have probably had to kill at that point. It would have been a strong compulsion. It's interesting that you say that they did find a ripper like kills in New York. Right. Carrie Brown. Yes. Not far from where um, Holmes was staying at Astor House. Yes. And it was like it was like about it was like right down the street or something. Right. Is where she was murdered. Yeah. So, I mean, there are things like that later. But why aren't they looking for it? In 1888, early 1889, when he gets back to America, that's a when good they question. when they when they think he gets back to America, right? You know, they that, I'm I'm I was a little shocked that they they missed that. I wonder because it seems to me this guy is probably going to kill his way across America back to mm-hmm. Illinois if if possible. You know, yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering if they didn't mention it because they kind of looked into it and it didn't fit what they were trying to do. Maybe, you know, yeah. it didn't support their theory. So, 
I'm just because you know it is a show, and they they have to they want to find the truth, I think, but they also have to keep the show interesting enough to keep people watching. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So it could be that they just didn't find anything, or it could be that you know it's 1888 or 1889, and somebody could be murdered and. It didn't necessarily, you know, what happened in one city didn't necessarily go to another city. You know, or it might not have gotten reported. You know, yeah, if he killed her and hit her somewhere, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know. That's a good question because you would think. Actually, I think they did have somebody look at the letters for the strokes and how they. They, they do. At the first of the episode, I was questioning that. So I was trying to kind of set us up for, you know, later later in the episode, they do hire Mm-hmm. a handwriting analyst. Yes. So I was I was pleased with that. But mm-hmm. what what they do is immediately after entering into the episode they start talking about Holmes's murder spree. Mm-hmm. And uh you want to talk about that where he starts off like say with the Connors and all of that. Was she living or was she working for him at that time? I can't remember now but that's had she been uh, Yes. Uh, she she and her, her husband had worked for Holmes and then he'd left her and home, she and Holmes were having an affair. This is one of the affairs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, she was having an affair. And then around Christmas of ni- uh, 91, uh, she goes missing. Mm-hmm. Holmes said later on that she died from a botched abortion. Yeah. This is one of the abortion mm-hmm. things. And then, of course, he had, you know, he had to get rid of the kid. Mm-hmm. Right. No, uh, I don't have any information on how the child died. He must not have mentioned how yeah, he I did saying, it. I didn't write that down either, so I don't think it's there. Um, However, but, in, eight, in 1895, when they were searching his home, they found a six-year-old bones of a six-year-old. Yes. It seems like he must have buried her there and done whatever he does. you know. Mm-hmm. And I did have that Julia was probably sold as a skeleton. So, yeah, that was, that's from the Murder House documentary. Yeah. So she was probably sold as a skeleton. And, you know, with the daughter, I I would hope that he would just kill her quickly and then, you know, do what he does. But, you know, because I can't decide whether he does enjoy the torture or if that's not important to him. Because there were some things where it seemed like he he killed them first and then would do the things to their bodies. And then there were other uh, examples that they set out or depending on what your source of information was, it they made him sound like he enjoyed torturing people. What Most is your- of what I've read was that eventually he gets a taste for torture. Uh, once he begins the, the third phase of his career, which is the sex murders, he starts to utilize the, the hotel in certain ways. Like, of course, you know, he, he lines the walls with asbestos to soundproof them so that he can work on people and you can't hear the screams. There is uh, now with like Emmeline. The Grand? Yeah. He, he gasses her, but there's, there's no mention as to whether or not he tortures her or not. Right. But around this time, he's also using torture. And this is where he starts to use the vault. He starts putting people in the vault to either suffocate them, deprive them of like food and water for long periods of time to make them more pliable. If he wants someone to um, sign deeds over to him or give him large sums of money or any of that, he uses these particular methods right. to uh, 
to extract what he wants. But he's also using it on women at this point because he's getting a, a real taste for that kind of killing. And again, we see another thing where I'm like, I, there's no way that this guy can be Jack the Ripper because he gets back to America. He does all these other types of kills. And then later on, he picks up the psychosexual angle with murdering and torturing women. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem like he would he would split that up that way. It seems like he would come back to Chicago and just immediately start killing almost exclusively women. Right. If if he is Jack the Ripper, because Jack, like as he said, I'm down on whores. Right. Doesn't call them prostitutes, calls them whores, makes it again biblical. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Because is, is that not how they're referred to in a sermon from the pulpit? Yeah. I don't I th- think they would have been referred to as prostitutes. I think they would have been called whores. Make them as, make it as, because it's a much dirtier word. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, a slur in a sense. Yeah. Um, right. So yeah, I'm trying to think if I remember if the word whore is used much in the Bible. And honestly, I can't remember. Um, the of Babylon. That's true, the horror of Babylon. That's the and, only instance I can remember. And otherwise, it, like I, I think of the adulterer or adulteress. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Gosh, I can't. Or remember. they would, or they would just skip over it entirely. You know. Yeah. Uh, you know, she knew many men, or yeah. something like that. You know. Mm-hmm. Right. But Don't, knowing someone in the biblical sense, yeah, is for sure. Yeah. So I don't know. That's a good question about <laughs> how how much that was used. Um, yeah. But he definitely seemed to with those letters seem to almost have like an arrogant um, supremacy and maybe like a justification for what he was doing because they're evil right. or they're bad. Yeah. You know, it, they were doing stuff they shouldn't be doing so I can kill them type of thing. Like a punishment. You can, you can see a lot of that in the, uh, the modern incel movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This feeling of, this feeling of both superiority and this also kind of, I'm a victim. Mm-hmm. Of these women. I need to teach thing. these women a lesson. Yeah, mm-hmm. I got to teach these women a lesson for. Yeah. But, you know, it, it doesn't seem like Holmes had much trouble uh, seducing women. No, he didn't. And it, they liked him well enough. I mean, he had three wives and then all these mistresses. Right. So I don't think that he would necessarily have like an anger or hatred towards women. That's more. what I think, too. Yeah. And Jack definitely has an anger is- anger issues. Yeah. So when we're back in um, episode four, Home Sweet Hell, mm-hmm. um, so he kills the Connor family. And then we realize up in New York City, which uh, I think you had just mentioned, Carrie Brown, or actually he had New York City, May Barrett worked for him in yes. New York City. And, right. she, and dis- then she disappears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right. then Carrie Brown was a middle-aged um, prostitute. She was in New York City also when she was murdered, and she was also disemboweled. And they actually mm-hmm. had Scotland Yard come over to look into the murder, which I would think when you, they must have been really confident that it looked like a Jack the Ripper type of thing, because you know they were they didn't hop on a plane to get right. They had to yeah they had to book passage on a steamer yeah. and then spend a week traveling across yeah that's, the ocean. That's a big deal, you know. So I think right. they must have really thought that that could be the Ripper. Oh, one of the things was uh, she had an X carved into her back that is similar to a wound on Catherine Edo's face. 
Yes, she had the. Uh, remember, she has the X mark on her cheek. Yes, that's interesting. So that 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 was definitely part of it, and of course, you know, the the newspapers were saying this is a Ripper style murder, and the Metropolitan Police had a had an egg on their face, yeah. for not solving the Ripper murder. So they had a they had a vested interest in wanting to close that case, and yeah. sending people over there. You know, let let's let's make sure we find if this guy is there, let's get him. Right. Because they already had an idea, again, that he was an American. Right. So when they heard Ripper murder in America, I mean, if, I, if I'm the if yeah. I'm the head of the Metropolitan Police, I'm I'm sending a whole team over. Right. I, you know, if I can afford it. I guess she was found. She'd had her intestines had been removed and right. she'd been strangled. So both yes. of those things, the strangulation and then the um, intestines being removed are two big things that kind of would link it to the um, Jack the Ripper killings. They also had Dennis Ryan is the forensic document expert. And he actually did compare, like you were mentioning earlier, the two mm-hmm. letters or the letters with um, stuff that they knew was from Holmes. So they had the two letters of Jack the Ripper and then they had Holmes sam- samples and it came back that it was inconclusive. So that's another one of those kind of frustrating things where we don't know for sure either way of whether the penmanship looks to be, you know, the same or not. I'm more like the the analysis comes back in episode five. Yeah. They just start the, the ball rolling on it in episode four. Okay. I kind of put it together. As a matter of fact, well, yeah. Yeah. Um, But during, during this time is when he kills Emmeline. The grand. There you go. It's a grand. Um, so it's this point we start hearing about the various businesses that Holmes owned. And one of those was William and Green Company, which was an, uh, a purchase. They, they were a, a concrete company. Mm-hmm. So they purchased a lot of materials for making concrete, but there, there's no evidence of them selling any. Right. Emily is supposed to have been supposedly going to marry some guy. And then all of a sudden she just kind of disappears. Mm-hmm. And Holmes says that she, I think, went upstate or went somewhere. I don't remember. But then a few days later, he has people help him remove a very heavy trunk from the hotel. Right. And so it's theorized that she's in that trunk. Mm -hmm. And if he took her over to the William and Green Company, it could be at this point, they believe that he is now encasing bodies in concrete and throwing them into the Chicago river. I have a trouble with that because first of all, he does have the crematorium. And Mm -hmm. so to me, it's like, even if he wasn't going to bury her, you know, and he wanted to get rid of the body, it would make sense to, to burn the body first. Cause then you just have to deal with bones and that's a lot lighter. You don't have, you don't need as big of a, box or whatever you're using to to hide that in or to to dispose of so i think it makes sense to think that her body is in the trunk but at the same time when he has a crematorium in the basement it doesn't make sense to me unless for some reason it wasn't working and it it could very well be that he's using that company to buy materials to make concrete and then using it possibly what in the construction of his of his hotel. Yeah. You know, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be uh, hiding bodies like that. Right. I think we think I'm, of it. I'm with you on that. That's good. Yeah. I think 
we are sometimes think about that because of like the mob bosses. We think, oh, they gave them right. concrete shoes, you know. It just doesn't make sense to me um, with in reference to to Holmes. It, it makes sense in that Holmes varied how he did things. He yeah. didn't gas everybody. You know, That's some true. people some people he tortured, some people he captured, some people he possibly killed outright. He he varies his style. So it it makes sense in that way. But it how much of a because he had to he had to transport that those bodies for miles. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, I'm recently back from Chicago. That is a big city. And he there was a lot of space between the hotel and say William and was it William and Green? Is that what it's called? That sounds familiar. That's the concrete people. So I mean, he would have to transport a body across the city. That yeah. completely defeats the idea of keeping it local, of building the yeah. murder castle to begin with. Mm-hmm. If he's taking the bodies out and dumping them over here, that doesn't make very much sense to me. He's too yeah. smart for that. Unless he's somehow getting, unless he's got people in those in those warehouses, in those businesses, he's got them trapped in there somehow, and that's where he took them. Mm-hmm. Like as in, you know, come visit me over here at my warehouse. I need to talk to you about something. And boom, he's got them there. If murders are happening at the warehouse, then I can understand him putting them in concrete and putting them in the river. Yeah. Otherwise, that's too much exposure. For a it's guy a lot that, of effort. Yeah, it is. It is. And again, he's a small guy. Yeah. And at this point, I don't believe Peitzel is part of the picture yet. So mm-hmm. how is he lugging this massive, like, things of concrete? Into the into the river, yeah. He would he would, he would struggle with the bot. Dead yeah. weight is amazingly heavy. If you've ever had to lift someone who is unconscious, it is harder than some someone who is naturally flexing their muscles as you're lifting. Yeah, it's easier. It makes them stiffer. Picking up somebody that's just limp is very difficult. And for yeah. him to be a small guy, even if these ladies are only. 90 to 120 pounds or whatever, he is still, that, that's a lot of weight to lift. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, I don't know that he could have done it. Especially in an awkward shape too, because you, yeah, you're talking exactly. about a trunk or a box. Right. That's even Which harder. That, that, that's another 50 pounds you have to add to that. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't think I'm a, I don't think I believe that he dropped people into the Chicago river. Just seems like that would be too hard, <laughs> too much effort right. for something he didn't have to have effort for, you know. Exactly. Yeah, he he had his whole setup right there, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and he and he had people who were more than willing, apparently, to get rid of the bodies for him. In terms of like, all he's got to do is get them down to the basement, put them in the bath of quicklime, strip the flesh off the bones, sell the bones, or if he wants to sell the organs, he had people who were acting as go betweens for. Him. You know, and getting that's, them to the medical universities, he didn't have to do the whole concrete thing. No, he didn't. And you know, that's a good point, also, because there had to be people who would be like, "Wow, I wonder where he's getting all these bodies from." Right? I mean, yeah. why? Why does he seem to have an endless supply of organs? Did these people were they suspicious at all? Did they just not care in the least? Because it seems well, they, like they would they would turn a blind eye to that sort of thing. Yeah. If you were a doctor, you had to turn a blind eye to that. If you were if you were a teach at a teaching hospital, you had to. 
they they talked about it in the murder hotel documentary. Yeah. If you recall, they were talking about the idea that these guys had to just, it was a, an ugly part of the job, but it, you know, they had to do it. I guess I had enough bodies for it. Right. And I guess I can understand that, but I just think were they not like, I think I would have to naively think that, Oh, this person happened to die and they were there. So they were able right. to use the the organs, not, I think he's murdering people to sell their organs because <laughs> there is a difference. Yeah, but what, like, ima- imagine the leap you have to take in, 18, eight, in 1891. God, I wonder if he's killing all these people. No one would have thought that. Yeah. That's what. That's one of the things that made the, the crime so horrific. Yeah. Was the murder rates were actually pretty low in America. I think at one point they said it was like one in every 100,000 people. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the idea that somebody was killing people wholesale. Yeah. Would, you wouldn't have gone to that place. That'd be an unthinkable thing, you know? Yeah, probably. That's true. It would be almost like us trying to consider, like, uh, string theory, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> and it, I mean, all, even today, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around about it. But, like, what if, like, somebody was trying to talk about it in 1950? Yeah. You know, it would have yeah. been, people would have, like, put him in a, put, you know, they would have put you in a mental asylum. Yeah. Well, my you know, mom always... Saying. My mom always talks about her Dick Tracy watch, her Apple yeah. watch, you know? I mean, that you could talk to people through your watches, you know, used to be yeah. fairy tale, science fiction stuff. Exactly. And now it's reality. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe, you know, that's probably how the doctors wanted to look at it too. They probably didn't want to think too much about it. So it's mm-hmm. the same thing. We don't have like a, they wouldn't have had a way to conceive of a, a mass killer. Yeah, because because Occam's razor. What's the more likely thing that he's killing hundreds of people, or he has a, or he has contacts who are like pulling dead bodies out of places, and mm-hmm. and he's like buying from buying them on the cheap, and then turning around and selling them to the universities. That's well, a much more likely scenario. Yeah, and he is a doctor, so he doctor. might be around people who are in the process of dying. Exactly. So he just helps them die faster. <laughs> <laughs> years faster years years years, years faster, faster. Yes. so i think we can move on to episode five black heart white city sorry about the abrupt ending to our talk about hh holmes but don't worry on friday lewis and i will complete our discussion on hh holmes's activities during the world's fair in chicago do you want to be part of my secret obsession? I'm looking for secrets and tattletales to read aloud on the podcast. Do you know any small town secrets? Have you had a brush with danger that rocked your world? Are supernatural activities or hauntings keeping you up at night? Write your story and send it to my secret obsession podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow my secret obsession on Instagram and Twitter at cherish lively. Thank you for joining me for this episode of My Secret Obsession. New episodes drop on Tuesdays and Fridays.